Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10, and you'll find it on page 5, or if you have a Bible, uh, you can read from there, obviously. Of course, I've managed to print the right passage this week. I printed a different version uh, last week, but what I'm going to read is what you have in front of you this morning, Revelation chapter 10. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Seven megaphones we saw last week, seven trumpets. What can you hear? But now in chapters 10 and 11, what we're about to read, we discover that suffering alone, suffering only, is not God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Something else is needed. What is it? Last week, what can you hear? Today, what can you see? Look at chapter 10, verse 4 of our reading. We're about to come to chapter 10, verse 4. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. In other words, God is saying no more warnings. The world has had enough. Before the end of time, something else is needed to rise a deaf world. What can you see? So we're going to read chapters 10 and 11. And as we come to them, let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray. Prophet Jeremiah says, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. That is our prayer too, gracious Heavenly Father. These words of difficulty and strangeness, may in your kindness and by the power of your Spirit, may they be our joy and our heart's delight. For we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. 
So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. These two witnesses have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. What would you choose, friends, to rouse a deaf world? What would you choose? 
Suffering alone is not enough. The way in which God wants to wake us up, last week we saw God wants to wake us up through natural disasters, through evil, through sin and suffering in his world, are not enough. Do you remember chapter 9, verse 20? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, what did they do? Did not repent. So if that won't work, what would you do? Let me give you the answer. Let me tell you right up front what this sermon is all about. I'm going to give you the sermon right up front. And then I'm going to give us two things today to see. One from chapter 10 and one from chapter 11. Suffering alone does not rouse a deaf world to God. The faithful witness of the suffering church is also needed. I say that again, suffering alone, natural disaster, will not wake people up to who God is. The other thing that is needed is your suffering, my suffering, and faithful witness to Christ while we suffer. If the world doesn't listen to what God is saying, his trumpet megaphones, then it might just see what God is doing by placing you and me in the world. That's the message of these chapters. If they don't hear the signs, they might see us, the faithful, bleeding, speaking, humble, repentant witness of God's people is another tool in his hands to bring lost people to know him, to bring a lost world to its senses. Many, many people are swept into the kingdom by the way the people already in the kingdom live and die for it. Last week I said there is nothing you will do more powerful than speaking to God. The prayers of the saints, your prayers, you remember we saw it, are held in golden bowls. They are precious to God. There is nothing more powerful you can do than speaking to God. Today these chapters say to us there is nothing you can do with your life that is more powerful than faithfully speaking and living for God. Nothing more powerful than that, friends. Nothing. Faithful, humble witness. Friends, if you live and die like that, faithful, humble witness, if you live and die like that, you will have made it. End of story. Your life will be a success. Who you are and what you do and what you be, what you are will be a success. Let me give you two things to see this morning as we look at this. Number one, the message of the gospel is going to always be bittersweet in your life. The message of the gospel will always be bittersweet in your life. And number two, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ will be mapped onto your life. The life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to map his life onto your life. Now in these chapters that we've read together, we are in a completely different world, aren't we? I mean, completely different. Last week's chapters, two of the most terrifying in the Bible. Today's chapters, everybody agrees, two of the most difficult 
in all the Bible. One, one commentator, I turned to him for help this week. He said to me, in turning to the matters in chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, we come to a passage that is universally recognized as difficult. And when he had finished shedding his darkness on the passage, it, it was still difficult. No kidding, I thought as I read it. Listen, listen to Eugene Peterson. Here's somebody who helped me. I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the book of Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. There, there is a wonderful truth. Everything in Revelation can be found already in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. There is nothing new to say, but there is a new way to say it. I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. Ah, there it is, friends. There are engineers in the world, aren't there? And there are poets. Be a poet. There are romantics in the world, aren't there? And there are engineers in the world. Be a romantic. The book of Revelation is here to fire our imaginations. Chapter 10 tells you that the message of the gospel will be bittersweet in the Christian's life. But Revelation's way of saying it is to say, Use your imagination to see that. Imagine swallowing something that tastes amazing, but as soon as it goes into your stomach, gives you stomach ache. Imagine eating something that brings you delight, but then quickly it turns to despair. I think we can all imagine it, can't we? The mouth-watering dessert that you're weighing up, should I, shouldn't I, you decide to, and chronic indigestion on the way home. And the way that John does this imagining for us is, is not in chapter 10 and 11. He's not picking pictures out of thin air, but he is recycling the Old Testament for a new day. Revelation helps us to read the Bible well. And I want to say that to you as you sit with me completely bewildered by what we've read this morning. Revelation helps us to read the Bible well. For here's a truth you need to learn if you don't know this already. You will not learn to read the Bible well if you are not into recycling. Some of us are really into recycling. Others of us hate it. If you are not into recycling, you will not read the Bible well. You have to be into recycling to read the Bible deeply, richly. Because later parts of the Bible are always recycling earlier parts. The story of salvation, the good news of Jesus when he arrives in the world, simply recycles the story of Israel already told. Adam was called God's son. He was tested in the garden. He failed the test and he was exiled from the land of God's presence. Israel was called God's son. Tested in a desert for 40 years, they failed. And then later, when they made it to the promised land, they were exiled from the land. The Lord Jesus Christ arrives in the world 
what is he called? God's son. Tested in the desert for 40 days. He lives obediently. He lives perfectly. He deserves no exile. But look what happens when he dies. Where does he die? Outside the city. Exiled. Not for his sins, but for our sins. See what the Bible does? It recycles the story to tell the story. There are 12 tribes of Israel. How many disciples does Jesus choose? 12. He is forming a new Israel. The true people of God formed around him. The story is recycled, told again from a different angle. And in Revelation 10 and 11, you need to have your Old Testament episodes, the earlier episodes of the story in your head. For here is what is happening in these verses. John is recycling lots of stories from the Old Testament where God's people were faithful witnesses in a time of great adversity. He's reaching back to times when people were faithful in exile faithful to God, faithful to the Bible, and they paid the ultimate price for it. So if you look at chapter 10, verses 8 to 11, a voice speaking to John, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. John is recycling the story of the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a prophet when the people of God were in exile in Babylon when they were waiting for God to rescue them and they were experiencing terrible trouble. And Ezekiel is told, eat this book. Eat this book. Eat my words on a scroll. John sees in the story of Ezekiel and God's people at that time, he sees a vision for this time. Do you remember that All of chapter 10 and 11 in Revelation, all of it is happening between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. In other words, before the end of time, before the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the end of everything, this is what life will be like for God's people. Are we in the promised land yet? No. Oh, we are so far from it, aren't we? We are so far from home. And in John's day here, it was the imperial might of Rome, the awful, terrible might of Rome, terrible persecution. And for centuries ever since, isn't it true, God's people have had on their throats the boots of countless dictators, countless warlords, countless governments who hate the gospel. And in that world... In that experience, what you need to know, says John, well, he says, verses 8 to 11, look at me, look at my own experience in this vision. In that world, you need to know that the message of the gospel will be bitter sweet in your life. See see how the vision works? Look at the opening of the chapter. John sees a mighty angel. Some people think this description of the angel is so beautiful So powerful that this must be a picture of the Lord Jesus. I'm not so sure myself. Whether it is or it isn't, let's be clear about angels, friends. Just be clear about angels. Angels are not plump little darlings in oil paintings. They are not giggling tinsel-crowned kids in the school nativity. Eugene Peterson says, no, they are vast, fiery, sea-striding creatures. They have hell in their nostrils and heaven in their eyes. 
They are immense enough to fill the skies. They have galaxies of stars in their hair and they wield swords the size of comets. Isn't it an amazing picture, this angel? And look, verse 2, this angel has a scroll open in his hand. Now, I think we are meant to realize this is the scroll that the Lord Jesus has just opened. This is the scroll with seven seals that Jesus has opened. This is God's plan for the world. It's everything we're meant to know about how he made us, how we broke what he made, how he sent his son to save us. It's all there and the angel is roaring. Seven thunders echo back. And and, and as John goes to write down what he hears in the seven thunders, he's told to stop, seal it up, don't write it down. I think this means that God's warnings given in the trumpets are already enough. No, says God, the world doesn't need to hear any more warnings. There's plenty of warnings day after day after day. Now, in these final days, before the seventh trumpet sounds, all that you have in this scroll in my hand, God is saying, all that you have in here is enough. That's all the world needs to hear. So swallow it, John. I went to the angel, verse 9, and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of what it is like. It's, it's a picture of what is happening right here and now this morning. It's a picture of what is happening all through the week. Whenever you get five minutes to open your Bible and read, this is what it is like to take God's word, to take his gospel and take it deep into you so that it becomes part of you. That, that, that's what happens to the stuff that we eat, isn't it? It nourishes us, becomes part of us. John is told, look, th- this word that has become part of you and which you love, it tasted so good. Keep speaking it, verse 11. Speak it again to peoples and nations and kings. And as John does that speaking, friends, oh, the pain. Oh, the pain. Do you know what God uses to rise a deaf world? Christian people in pain. Christian people speaking words of light and life and beauty and truth who suffer terrible pain for speaking those words of life and light and truth and beauty. Isn't that what John is showing us? So many of you know this, don't you? Oh, friends, this isn't strange, this book in front of us. This is real life. Here in verse 10, here in verse 10 is the pastor's pain and the pastor's pleasure. Loving the word and speaking the word and scattering the seed, throwing it out week after week after week. And then what? Rejection. Indifference. People leave. People stay home. I'll walk the dog tonight instead. I've got to take my kids to whatever it is. Oh, how I love your law, we say with the psalmist. I love your words. I, I feast on them day and night. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my delight. Here you are this morning with brothers and sisters eating God's words. And then you leave and go home 
to an unbelieving spouse, to backslidden children, to atheist friends and colleagues. Some of you say this, don't you? You say to your spouse, look, I I want to do this with my money. I want to do this with my time with me. No, I don't agree with you. I, I want to share this part of my life with you. Not interested. Young people here today, you you are growing up here, aren't you, in our midst. You have good examples here in the church family. You have godly parents who love you. You can see that the gospel makes sense and you want to speak about it in school, but you're scared because you know that to do so will mean pain. Pain of rejection. The bitterness of speaking words that you love that other people find ugly. You've found this, haven't you? You've shared the gospel with someone, read the Bible with them. One to one, they seemed to like it. They listened to it. They said they loved it. And they walked away. You know this. One of our students here in our church family Uh, A few weeks ago online shared with the truth group her testimony. And to the the amazement of the young people, the student told them that when she became a Christian at 18, she shared the gospel with two friends in a car journey on the way home. And as they dropped her off at home, after she shared shared the gospel with them, they said to her, we never, ever want to hear about this again. Never speak to us again about what you've just told us. And friendships change. Right in front of your eyes, relationships are ended. The message of the gospel will always be bitter sweet in your life. It will bring you joy like nothing else, friends. We know that. We love these words. We love this gospel. And some of us weep at night because of the very same thing we love. Oh, it will always be so until the end. Living in exile, far from home. Number two, chapter 11, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ will be mapped onto your life. The life and death of the Lord Jesus will be mapped onto your life. This is chapter 11 we're going to look at. This is the chapter, friends, where people really go to town in the book of Revelation on weird and wonderful interpretations. And it's all to do with the two witnesses, chapter 11, verse 3. And who are these witnesses and what... When, when should we expect them in world history? Where are they going to appear? What are they going to do? If you don't believe me that this is where all the weird and wonderful people live in the book of Revelation, just go home and put two witnesses in Revelation into Google and click on images and all sorts of incredible things arrive. Many people are expecting two people to arrive, verse 5, one day with fire literally coming out of their mouths, uh, pictures of people like that. It's like something out of the Avengers or something. What, what do we do with a chapter like this? Let's let the recycling help us. Let the recycling help us. Look at verse 8. Their dead bodies, these two witnesses, whoever they are, will be killed. They will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt 
where their Lord was crucified. Ah, do you see that word symbolically? John is using symbols, isn't he? He's taking one thing to represent another thing. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is so evil, so wicked, so corrupt, that it has become like two of the worst places in the Old Testament rolled into one, Sodom and Egypt. John is recycling that story to tell this story. And that's what's happening here through this whole chapter, chapter 11. So look at 11 verse 1. John is told to measure the temple and measure those who worship there. I bet you're glad you don't have to get measured coming to church every Sunday. In other words, John is told to count up all the numbers of the faithful, but leave uncounted everybody outside. This is the division between the church and the world in picture form. Okay, start with that in your mind as we read this chapter. In these days that you and I live in, John is telling us there is a clear divide between inner court and outer court, between Christian and non-Christian. God knows who his people are. And then we get verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, closed in clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Here's what I think it means. In the prophet Zechariah, Old Testament, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the king, two people, are depicted as olive trees and lampstands. They are two upright Israelites at a time of massive national apostasy. They are fruitful olive trees. They are faithful lampstands. They keep burning. So God's two witnesses, whoever they are, are like Zerubbabel and Joshua from the Old Testament. Two fruitful and faithful people. But then you get to verse 6 in chapter 11. Look at verse 6. These two witnesses have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Who does that sound like? Elijah in the Old Testament. Who does the second part of verse 6 sound like? They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who is that? Moses. John has mixed his metaphors, hasn't he? He's blurred his pictures. He's clicked a different filter on his Instagram account. He's just kept us moving in his recycling of the stories. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Elijah, Moses. What do they all have in common? They were faithful witnesses at a time of massive hardship for God's people. When all else was lost, what did these people do? They just kept speaking, kept witnessing. They kept speaking God's words. They suffered faithfully. And so you see, I think these two witnesses are simply a symbolic picture of the faithful church in the last days. Why two, not one? Because in the Bible, two is the number of faithful witness. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. Deuteronomy says the truthfulness of a testimony is established by the mouth of two witnesses. This is John's way of getting us. Remember, put your engineering away. This is John's way of getting us 
to imagine truthfulness and reliability. And this witness will happen for, look at verse 3, for 1,260 days. Some of you will love this, the maths. In verse 2, the nations will make war on God's people for 42 months. Here is what John is doing with time and numbers. If a month is counted as 30 days, okay, then 42 months is 1,260 days. And 1,260 days is three and a half years. Three and a half years is half the number of seven. Half the number of perfection. Seven is complete time, perfect time, when the end will come. But before we get perfect time, we get half time, incomplete time. In other words, verse 2, 42 months is three and a half years. John is saying it will not last forever. 1,260 days is three and a half years. John is saying it is not permanent. It will not last forever. Verse 6, how long did Elijah prophesy for against Ahab there would be no rain? Three and a half years. Oh, the recycling is so clever. Friends, John is saying the times of suffering and persecution and faithful witness that you are in right now that feels excruciating and like it will never end, it will not last forever. No, it is only for now, for today, for this short period of gospel witness on earth. All the centuries of pain and bloodshed of God's people is not forever. It will one day be swallowed up in eternity. This is a picture of how for a short time God's faithful witnesses will suffer death. Look at verse 7, verse 8. And for a short time, notice again verse 9, three and a half days, the world will celebrate the death of Christians. If, if you look at verse 9 and 10, Those things happen today, friends. People dance on the graves of Christ's people. People celebrate the shedding of blood of faithful witnesses. The death of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is also the cause of much celebration and rejoicing in the world. And yet, verse 11, after those three and a half days, this period of death and dying, God will resurrect his people at the end and bring them safe to glory. The seventh trumpet will sound. Look at verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for three and a half years. No, forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want us to notice about your Christian life and my Christian life in these days before the end. You see what God will make of us? Who do these faithful witnesses come to look like? When they have finished their testimony, whom do they resemble? Look at verse 8 again. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Just like Jesus lay dead, they lie dead. 
Did you see the incredible meaning? God takes the life and death of the Lord Jesus and maps it onto his people's life. As to him, so to us. Faithful witness unto death. And after death, verse 11, resurrection. As to the Lord Jesus Christ, so to us. The thing that God uses in this age to rise a deaf world is the sight of Christian people being faithful unto death, just as he was. And so I want to say to us this morning, friends, as a church family, I want to say this to us very clearly. Learn to suffer well for being Christ's. Learn to suffer well for being his. Learn to suffer now when you are not suffering about what it, what it will mean one day, perhaps. For it will come, won't it, in some way, in some form. I cannot personally see the, the, the culture war that we are in, particularly on matters of sexuality and gender. I cannot see that not bringing us harm, pain, suffering, rejection, mockery, loss of job, loss of status. See, John is saying God has a way of making his people become what they say. God has a way of making his people become the very things that they say. God has a way of making people participate in the message that they proclaim. This is all over the book of Revelation. It's all over these chapters today, isn't it? We don't just speak the words of the Bible. They, they become part of us. We, we feel their life and we feel their pain. Friends, God has a way of making the message of a crucified Savior flow from the lips of crucified people. He, he, he just has a way of doing that. He does it again and again and again. Faithful witnesses become what they then say. It is difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. And people who tell the truth frequently get killed. That, that, that's the message of chapter 11. It is difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. And people who tell the truth frequently come to harm. Maybe the world knows that. There's a truth in that generally, isn't there? Well, how much more so for us? It is difficult and dangerous to live for Jesus. And people who live for him and speak for him frequently get killed. What does God want from you today, from me today, as we sit here listening in, in these days of six trumpets sounding, waiting for the seventh trumpet? What does he want from us in the joy and pain of being a Christian? One word, faithfulness, faithfulness. Chapter 10, verse 11, and I was told you must again Prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You see that little word? Again. Again. I, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. I'm fed up speaking and speaking. No, do it 
again. Do it again. Share the gospel again. Do it one more time. Run the course again. Send the invitation again. Speak those words of light and life and truth and beauty. Speak them again. Be faithful. It is what God will use. It's astonishing, isn't it, that he would use this to rise a deaf world. It's not what I would choose, Lord. Someone said to me, what is going to wake up the world? Have your ideal list in front of you. I would choose a church that is loved by thousands. People flocking to her doors. I would choose world leaders knocking on the doors of ministers, knocking on their studies and coming to see elders and deacons, asking, what does righteousness in a nation look like? That's what I'd choose. I'd choose size. I'd choose influence. I'd choose power for the church in society, not weakness. Surely, Surely what we need is to be woke. Wokeness will win the world. No, says John. No, says the Lord Jesus. Brokenness will win the world. Brokenness. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. Of chapter 11, rather, sorry. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Do you know what wins the world, friends? Humble, broken people. Shining bright for a humble, broken man on a Roman cross. People dressed in sackcloth. I'm no better than you, friends. I'm no different. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all we are. Be faithful, Verse 18, the nations raged, but then your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. The time came for destroying the destroyers of the earth. One day that will come. Until then, brothers and sisters, be faithful. Faithful to the end. Amen.